So I have a question for you. Okay, shoot. If you were the serial killer in a movie and you had to choose which pop song uh, to play over your scene, what would you choose? I mean, we already have Stuck in the Middle with You from Reservoir Dogs. That's taken. And Karma right. Chameleon, obviously. Yeah, I my, <laughs> my initial answer would probably be like, oops, I did it again. I like, actually think that's incredible. Yeah. Oh, there I go. Killing again. I'm not that innocent. Uh, is there is there a song that you have in mind? Oh, several. But the one that I'm thinking would be fun right now would be uh, Waterloo by ABBA. That would be really fun. Just something really kicky and poppy and fun. Like Waterloo. Yeah. Yeah, I could see like the music fading out and like something serious happening, but then it fading back into you killing someone, right? Because we're serial killers. And then you killing someone and like the music, you know, that big ABBA like flare kicks in. and it's... Right. Because I think that song, like, I feel like ABBA and ELO are two bands that have like a guaranteed piano bridge. Uh, so like right in the yeah. middle of the song, you can really get stabby. Yeah. Uh, I, enthusiastic stabbing to energetic pop songs. That's, you got me hooked. <laughs> With that in mind, shall we get started? Yeah. Necromancer. I'm Shira. I'm a rom-com fan. I'm Brett. I'm a horror movie fan. And together, each week, I pick a rom-com, Brett picks a horror, and then we remix those movies. We're going to turn that rom-com into a horror and that horror into a rom-com. Today, I am very excited about our theme. It is actress Halle Berry. Woo! Yeah. Uh, who has been name dropped on the podcast before when, um, for my love bite executive decision. That was one of her first little movies where she was the flight attendant. That's right. I still, I still need to see executive decision, but from the way that you described it, it sounds oh. great. Especially this idea that Kurt Russell is on a plane and doesn't know that he's Kurt Russell. Yeah, it's uh, Kurt Russell as a naive, innocent James Bond who has to, it's like a James Bond origin story. He's in a suit <laughs> and he's, you know, he's got to fight off the bad guys. Yeah, I I feel like I notice a pattern now, now that we've, we've evened out, we've evened out the game, we've done two actors we Halle Berry will be our second actress and I feel like now we've established this pattern where the first actor is always kind of 
a character actor like Matthew Good and Vera Farmiga. They're not people who like I imagine um, are getting chased down by paparazzis constantly where, you know, they they act and, and it's and it's a job. Uh, and they're and they're great actors. Whereas, you know, Tom Cruise, Halle Berry. Now we're talking about stars, internationally beloved icons. Oscar yeah. winners. Or, <laughs> wait, I don't know. I don't know if uh, I don't think Matthew Good has won an Oscar. I don't know about Vera Farmiga. Uh, I don't think either one of them have. I don't even know if Tom Cruise has been nominated for an Oscar. Maybe for Magnolia or born on the 4th of July, but I don't think he's ever won. I have no dick. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I would imagine that. Although when you mentioned Magnolia, it reminded me how much they said, how much Tom Cruise said the word pussy in that movie. And then how much it gets said <laughs> in uh, Boomerang. Oh by yeah. Grace a Jones. lot. <laughs> Oh my God. But so what do you think is Halle Berry's unique appeal as a star? Hmm. That's a very good question. I think she has, she has a genuine kind of X factor intensity about her when it comes to maybe doing some of these fluffier roles. Cause neither one of these movies is like a heavy hitting sort of Oscar caliber movie. Um, they're both just kind of, I don't know. I mean, even though, even though the call is a very intense movie, it's, you know, it's ultimately a pretty light, fun, even kind of silly movie. Um, oh, it's but totally silly. But if totally. you're willing to meet that silliness halfway, oh. you're going to have such a good time. Such I mean, time. I, like, Here's the thing is I really feel like myself included people intellectualize movies way too much and sometimes you just want to be entertained and have fun. I think that the worst thing a movie can be is boring and the most offensive thing you can do is be boring and not funny or not interesting more than, you know, crossing boundaries or saying things that are really cringy like there were some dated things in Boomerang that just made me oh, be yeah. like, "Ooh!" Um, but it was, but it was never boring. It was always, you know, trying to to do something. You're shaking your head like you do not feel as enamored with Boomerang as you oh, do. No, not at all. Oh. We'll get into it. But there's some actresses like I don't have anything against Jennifer Lawrence as an actress, but. If you look at her work in like Winter's Bone or Silver Linings Playbook versus X-Men or Hunger Games, she just doesn't have that like spunky X factor that, you know, that I don't She's not like maybe maybe it's she's not a good face actor or something, but. She just seems bored in those movies. Whereas Halle Berry, like Halle Berry gets it. You put Halle Berry in a movie like The Call and she knows what she's doing. You put her in a movie like John Wick 3. Holy crap, she's a badass in that movie. Um, oh, she's so, so cool in that movie. And it's yeah. interesting because I feel like in Boomerang and in The Call, she's kind of a nerd or just a normal person. 
you know it's, it's right but somehow Hallie made me fall for it but yeah I am um, uh yeah I mean well I've always loved the character of Storm from the X-Men Storm was always always hands down my favorite um with Rogue at a close second um but uh yeah I I feel like Halle Berry um I she's kind of like a female Tom Cruise. Like she seems really game for doing sort of tough physical acting. Like for instance, I think um, I think because of COVID, it might be you know stalled or something. But she was filming a movie um, recently where she plays an MMA fighter, and then she mm-hmm. got totally into the process of training of learning mixed martial arts. Um, she looks the part. She acts the part. Uh, apparently in Jungle Fever, one of her first movies, she went full method again and, you know, didn't shower or something, which annoyed Samuel Jackson a lot. Um, sure. Uh, but but she, she seems game just to to fully invest in the role and i don't know i feel like the call is a movie where just based on the description it's like yeah that seems okay whatever um but she she totally went into it and for better or worse really tried to uh inhabit that role of the 911 dispatcher and i feel like it it seems clear that she did her research she probably shadowed some people. Apparently, the infamous wig, which has its own Twitter account, by the way, uh, was modeled after an actual person in a call center or in a dispatcher center where they saw this hairdo. Again, I I have no idea what the what they were thinking. I um, love the hairdo. I really. I love it. I love her hairdo in in the call. I think it's great. It's like it's it makes her seem so unassuming, but it doesn't make her seem like childish. It it like it makes her seem innocent, but without making her seem weak. I don't know. I think it's like it's a cute little design, but it's also like she owns it. So yeah, I, don't I know. mean, she she definitely sells it. She she really does. I I feel like maybe Hallie's Halle Berry's defining quality is what she says in Boomerang. She's got heart. Hallie Hallie is a heroic woman, and I feel like she she finds ways to pick roles, or at least these two roles we got to see her be really heroic. And you know, for me, one of my key definers for a truly strong female character is a woman who helps other women. Uh, And boy, does she do that. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I think also kind of like Anna Kendrick, if we're flashing back to Vera Farmiga, Anna Kendrick... Mm up in the air, that was one of her first big movies. And she went up against George Clooney and she just didn't falter at all. She was very confident and she looked very relaxed. Um, I mean, in Boomerang, she's going up against Eddie Murphy. This is one of her yeah, first movies. At Eddie and Murphy's she, height. And she just feels like she completely fits in. So I think, you know, right off from the bat, there's some people who just have a relaxed, I belong here approach. 
And like, yeah, Halle Berry, put her in a movie with a megastar and she belongs there. Star power, baby. <laughs> All right. So which movie should we do first? Um, I love The Call. Okay. You want to so you you get into you The Call into first? It? All right. Uh, I love this movie, man. You know, this is one of those movies, like, every once in a while, I mean, I, I actually, I'm not every once in a while, this happens more often than I say, but uh, it's so easy for me to convince myself that I know exactly what my experience is going to be, and then we watch Night and Day, or we watch The Call, yep. and I think to myself, why is nobody talking about how fun this movie is? Yeah, Sonia did not want to watch Night and Day with me. She did not want to watch The Call with me. And I was like, these are really she, fun, good movies. Did she get and into then, it? No, she didn't watch either one of those with me. But then the moment after you texted me when you were like, oh my God, Night and Day, this is amazing. Or, oh my God, The Call, this was my face the whole time. I just screenshotted that and sent it to Sonia. And I was like, see, these are legitimately <laughs> good movies. Like, I know what you're thinking when you sit down to watch this movie. But trust me, it's way better than what you think. So I'm right. glad. I'm glad you had a good time with this one. Um, oh, yeah. And I, I came into the movie with exactly those kind of prejudices. I I was prepared to think, like, this movie's okay. Halle Berry wears a silly wig. Blah, blah, blah. Um, <laughs> um, but no, it's, it's, it's really good. Uh, so here we have the story of the call. Jordan Turner, 911 operator played by Halle Berry answers a call from a teenage girl. The girl, Leah tells her that she is in her home alone and a man is trying to break in. Jordan advises Leah to drop her shoes outside of a window and leave it open while she hides under the bed. So the intruder will leave. And then at first, things seem to be going just according to plan, but then the call disconnects and Jordan calls back, causing, to causing the phone to ring, and that's what alerts him to Leah up there. He captures her, he then picks up the phone, and then when Jordan warns him not to hurt Leah, he ends the call with, it's already done. Ooh, I wonder if that's going to come back to bite him in the butt. <laughs> I also love that she calls back and that's what tips off the guy. Like if you ever want to make a movie interesting, make your characters an active part of the story. Calling back was a choice. And later, you know, when her supervisor was like, Hey, why did you call back? She's like, I don't know. I wasn't thinking like, yeah, that's an intense situation. She made a mistake. She made a choice. It was the wrong choice. Then she had to pay for it. Like that's, that's good storytelling. It's great storytelling. And, you know, I feel like it's one of those things where, like, throughout this movie, I really came away from it with a new respect for 911 dispatchers. I mean, you know, I know that there's a lot of criticism going around about the police today, and I have some of my own. But the people who are dispatchers for 911, those aren't law enforcement officers. Those are people who are helping you in an emergency and it's a really tough job helping people in a crisis and and making them feel safe. It's, it's practically impossible. Um, but yeah, no. So she's she's playing someone who is really heroic. But 
It's a tough-ass job because the murder gets confirmed the next day by a news report, and Jordan is so shook up by her part in Leah's death that she decides to retire from the field and become a trainer for other operators. So then during class one day, she's showing students around the call floor, or the hive, as it's called by the dispatchers, and then they observe a call in progress, but there's something different, or should I say really familiar, about this call, because the operator is panicking, uh, and when she looks to Jordan to help, just when Jordan thought she was out, they pull her back in. Oh. It's so it's such a hero's journey moment because she refused the call. She refused the call. She's like, no, I'm getting out of the field. But then the field called her. This um, is, I mean, this is when people say like, oh, Hollywood movies or whatever. They're so formulaic. Like, no, yeah, this movie's formulaic, but man, it hits all the beats and they all feel good. If it ain't broke, <laughs> don't fix it. It works. We recognize it just because you understand what's happening. And I, again, like I feel this way about twists versus suspense. Suspense is knowing what's going to happen and feeling the dread of being unable to stop it or influence it. So it doesn't hurt the story to know that of course, Jordan is going to be back on the call. Right. Uh, she has to be. She's Halle Berry. Uh, so now Jordan is talking to the girl who called in for more info. Her name is Casey, Little Miss Sunshine, Abigail Breslin. Yeah. Uh, she was kidnapped from the mall by a man and put in a trunk of a car. That scene was terrifying. I feel like horror movies, sometimes the threats in horror movies are so fantastical that it's really easy to disengage. But the fear that I felt seeing someone being abducted in a parking garage, it feels much closer to reality for me. Yeah. And I know that you're a true crime fan. So any anyone who watches like forensic files or just anything like that, this movie feels like just a really intense forensic files narrative feature film. Oh yeah. This is like Dateline with better acting. Yes. <laughs> uh, and so she's in the trunk of the car and even though the uh, kidnapper took her cell phone, Casey had the fortune of picking up her friend Autumn's burner phone because she accidentally left it behind. So Casey uses that to call 911. The problem, the phone doesn't have a SIM card, so it's going to take a long time to locate the cell towers, pinging the signal, and then even then it's only going to just give them to general area. Uh, so if you're planning to commit crimes, uh, get a burner phone. Uh, <laughs> Jordan then directs Casey to knock out the taillight and wave at the other cars behind the kidnapper. A woman driving behind the kidnapper calls 911, but then makes the mistake of pulling up next to him to get a description. That spooks him and makes him get off the freeway. So then Jordan directs Casey to leave a trail by pouring paint out the hole because she found some paint cans in the trunk. Uh, but this causes another driver to call to tell the kidnapper that he's linking paint out of his trunk. Kidnapper pulls over to a secluded area. He's threatening Casey, but then the driver follows him to see if things are okay. Um, but he goes back to his car and he's like, ah, I don't feel right about this. Uh, so he dials 911, but just as he's doing that, 
The kidnapper assaults him, hits him over the head with a shovel, puts him in the trunk of the car. Uh, now the suspect is Look in at what the guy's Casey car. did. Look at what she did. <laughs> she just keeps killing people. <laughs> Look what you made me do. <laughs> I I like the guy who plays the killer is is also really game. Uh, yeah, and, he, and I I enjoyed I enjoyed that he leaned fully into the camp and the craziness, the thrills, the chills. Uh, we we yeah, he starts out all. very anonymous and very much like a cipher for any kind of horror villain, sort of stalker villain. But then the more he becomes unraveled and the more we learn about him, just the more cartoonish he gets. Oh, yeah. Well, the first scene that we see him, we only see his silhouette. And then he does this thing where he kind of tilts his head to the side. Yeah, like a Michael Myers head tilt. Yeah, he he pulls the Michael Myers head tilt. And so he moves through the house in the dark, very predatory, um, but you know, that's the thing with serial killers. They basically look like your average white guy. Uh, yeah. and it, it like, as somebody who loves cold cases, you would not believe just how freaking vague, um, artist recreations of, you know, suspects cited are, they're just basic random white guys like very rarely have i seen something where like the sketch resembles the actual uh suspect but yeah like he couldn't be more milk toast uh i also like that he was a thumb sucker i thought that that was yeah. uh that was great too um so now the suspect is in a new car uh and the man wakes up in the trunk and starts screaming and Casey's like, you need to shut up, but he just won't stop because he's a man. Um, and then the killer opens the trunk and he kills him. So now Jordan makes Casey take the man's wallet so they can use it to identify him and put out an APB on his car. Meanwhile, Angela's cop boyfriend played by Morris Chestnut uh, such a cutie, uh, find some evidence in the area where the killer switched cars. They're able to lift prints off a broken bottle of chloroform and confirm the killer's identity, Michael Foster. So he's, he's also a Michael. Uh, so the cops head to the Foster residence and they question Michael's wife, played by Justina Machado from One Day at a Time and Six Feet Under. Oh, she's one of my favorite actresses ever. So when I saw her, I was like, oh, you're doing so much with the minute of screen time you have. I love it. Uh, but uh, yeah, I I really need Justina Machado to be in more things because she is so good. Um, and a role as the serial killer's wife is just so thankless. Um, right. So there they go to the house. Uh, they find a bunch of pictures of young Michael with a woman or a girl that looks like Leah and Casey, basically pretty and blonde. Uh, Angela's boyfriend then sees one picture with a house in it and Michael's wife confirms that they still own the property even though the house was demolished Michael is renovating the farmhouse so they head there but they can't find Michael or Casey 
and it takes them a while to even find the car where he dumped uh, the man's body. So Angela, she just can't shake this case. She's listening to the last minutes of the call and she's turning down the volume on the voices so she can hear what's in the background. And she hears this clanging sound, which should be obvious to most people. It's the sound of a flagpole. I thought that was interesting because they do a good job of presenting you with the clue. And it's a sound that everyone has heard but until you hear that sound and you're trying to be like, what is that? I don't think you would ever really think of that. But it's so it, it's the perfect sound because everybody's heard the sound of a flagpole. You've been outside a school building before. So immediately I was like, it's a flagpole. They're by right. the flagpole. <laughs> uh, and, and that was exciting. Uh, so then Angela decides to go um, – agent starling and go to the scene herself uh so she goes to the farmhouse and decides to investigate and it seems like just as about she's about to leave then she hears the clanging sound she sees the flagpole and then next to the flagpole she finds a hatch and then she opens it and drops right into michael's murder bunker So we learn that Michael is obsessed with his dead sister and he scalps his victims so that he can hold their blonde hair against his face and smell it while imagining his sister. Uh, And then Angela stops Michael from scalping Casey. Together they fight him off and they manage to throw him down the hatch, knocking him unconscious. Angela is about to call 911, but then Casey tells her to wait. Then we cut to Michael waking up bound to the dentist chair that he scalps his victims on. Angela and Casey tell him that they ran away and he disappeared. Uh, And they repeat his line back to him. It's already done. Uh, And then they lock him in, implying that they basically let him die there instead of being arrested. Vigilante justice wins again. Yeah. Uh, the final 20 minutes of this movie is just, I like it when movies, they just go for it. And they're like, you know what? We're just going to have a murder bunker showdown. Why not? Yeah. I, I, I feel like once we got into the murder bunker, it's basically like when they make it to the strip club from dusk till dawn, where, you know, the first hour of this movie possibly hour and 20 minutes is really just, you know, this taut, taut thriller. Uh, and then we get into the murder bunker and suddenly we're in saw territory. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I mean, I just, I, I think, I, I, I think I've said this about a few other movies that we've watched, especially horror movies. Um, but, you know, there's the kind of people that would watch this and probably, like you said, um, you kind of got to meet the movie halfway. But there's some people who would watch this and go like, oh, of course they're doing this. Like, you know, of course the guy shows up and he's like, hey, do you need any help with your trunk? No, maybe I should investigate. No, stay over there. OK, I'm going to drive away now. Mm, no, I should call 911. Oh, I'm being attacked with a shovel. Like. Some people would probably go like, oh, that's so unrealistic. Oh, of course they're doing that. It's so stupid. It's so silly. Or you could be like, fuck yeah, we're doing this. <laughs> I, you know, even though there were parts that were predictable, I was fully invested in 
Casey's experience. I was, you know, because it it's hard for me not to feel excited about, like I said, two women fighting against evil, helping each other out, you know, winning together. I feel like, you know, there are probably moments in this movie that pass the Bechdel test, but even if they didn't, I feel like by showing women in a heroic position, by showing women talking to each other, mentoring each other the way that her manager or her boss talks to her and tells her that she did the best that she could, you know, people being acknowledged for things they do that show strength of character, even if it's not, you know, Halle Berry and John Wick kicking ass and crossing guns while her dogs wear bulletproof vests, which is, is cool. It's super cool. Right. But, um, you know, there's, there's more ways to be heroic than that. And I just, I really, I really liked that. Yeah. I like movies like this or pretty much any of the mission impossibles, uh, where like a problem comes up. And then there's a solution that a character thinks of that you're like, oh, yeah, of course, that's what you should do. But then the solution is immediately foiled somehow. Uh, so like kicking right. out the light and then waving your arm out. It's like, yeah, of course. Yeah, do that. Like they think of it right away. But then someone clues the guy into the fact that, you know, there's an arm being waved, you know, like, why did that I, lady I have to speed up? Ugh. It, it was so like, again, if you're in it, if you're reading the movie halfway, all of those moments come yeah. and you're, you're like, yes, when she, when she gets the um, light out and, you know, she struggles to do it, but she gets it. You're like, oh my God, yes, things are going to happen now. She's going to get right. sick. Oh no, stupid lady. Uh, and I feel like I got so into watching the movie i think that there are two signs that i'm enjoying a movie one i forget about writing notes and i did remember to write some some notes in this case but the other thing that's a sign that i'm enjoying a movie is when i start talking at the movie uh and it's, it's a good thing that <laughs> i'm doing this at home <laughs> And not in a theater, but um, but I was talking at the movie and I was saying, no, dumb. Oh, my God. He's going to get her. No. Ah, don't set the man on fire. You know, like every every tense moment in the movie. And I actually woke up Doug and he thought that something was going on. Like maybe I saw a cockroach or there is some kind of crisis and I said no I'm, I'm just watching a movie yeah I was also even though I've already seen this movie before uh it had been a while but I was also very verbal watching this movie and so it, it sometimes I've seen a movie like a hundred times and I don't care I still like to play along as if I've never seen the movie and go like how could this be happening you know Right. I mean, if you just feel in the moment connected to it, it doesn't matter if you've seen it before. I mean, and sometimes it's just even more delicious. I liked every moment in the movie that Halle Berry referred to their horoscopes. I feel like that's a very divisive moment where if you're meeting the movie, you're like, fuck yeah, Capricorns, we're Capricorns, we're fighters. Right. Or if you're not meeting the movie, you're just like, who would come up with this? 
Yeah, it definitely seems, I don't know. It, it definitely seems like something that they would teach you in 911 class, which is, you know, keep the victim preoccupied, keep them distracted. You know, like when someone, when the, when the new girl says, oh, we can't trace your phone or something. And that causes Abigail Breslin to freak out. It's like, yeah, there's certain things you don't want to tell the victim. And there's certain things you do want to tell the victim. Like, you know, what's your favorite movie? Bridesmaids. Oh yeah. I like that movie. Um, yeah. So I, I do. I mean, I can kind of get how some people would be cynical about it, but it also, it seems like a legit operator tactic. It does. It, it, it definitely does. Um, what was I going to say? What did you think when the killer said hair needs a healthy blood flow? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you're going to have a one note character, you, you got to give them some juicy kind of, you know, dialogue to chew on. And so this guy is just really obsessed with blonde girls. And so he, he needs that blonde to stay as pure as possible. But he just wants the hair. Right. Yeah. He just wants the blonde hair so that he can, because they don't look like his sister all the way, but the blonde hair, oof. <laughs> Yeah, he, I, I liked that he got mad at Abigail Breslin when she got paint in her hair. Like, oh, yeah. look what you did. You ruined it. <laughs> a tragedy. <laughs> um, yeah, there's a lot of cool stuff in this movie that is like little tips and tricks that I think other people could use, especially in a horror movie. This movie feels like it's kind of the Bloomhouse model of let's make a movie for under $5 million that's just cheap and easy and make it a horror movie and then just make a bunch of money off of it. I don't know if this movie was successful or not, but there's little tricks that kind of pump it up. Uh, there's little frame phrases every now and then that just add this kind of visceral like energy to the movie. This kind of like, you know, instead of just watching this guy hit another guy with a obviously fake crowbar, it's like it freeze frames and you just feel like, ooh, you feel more of an impact. Or whenever they have to show things like the shovel or that crazy murder bedroom, uh, you always see Abigail Breslin's reaction before you actually see what the item is. And that's a good trick is, you know, don't just show what the scary thing is. Show a character reacting to it first. So there's lots of little I tricks. For, I totally fell for that moment where where he's like you don't want to turn the light on yeah <laughs> you don't want to see this and she's freaking out and and then but then Halle Berry goes in the room and it's really just a mock-up of a teenage girl's bedroom with some strategically placed blood smears which I couldn't tell if that meant that he just got very playful when he was sniffing scalps or maybe he tried to dress the victims like his sister and things role play went awry. Yeah, I think, I don't know. In my I was expecting a, a body like Psycho. Right. Yeah, I think that's kind of maybe he scalps them, brings them to the bed, and maybe he wears their hair while he 
murder tortures them. <laughs> I don't know. Oh God, I was really i I was worried. I was actually really worried that instead of sniffing the scalp, that he was going to put it on his head. And i I watched um. Uh, this documentary called Disclosure, which is about um, the portrayal of trans people in the media and how there's this thing where horror movies tend to portray trans people as killers, you know, like Buffalo Bill, what have you, Dressed to Kill. Um, But uh, I was glad that we did not get another stereotype of a a killer (laughs) with a a different gender identity and that's why he kills because he wants to be pretty. Right. Yeah. I, I, even if they didn't go that route, I think it would have been funny if he wore the hair just to like be closer to his sister. Um, But I also, there, there was a little bit of a sigh of relief that they didn't go full, full scalp wearing. Right. Right. Um, But yeah, I, who would have thunk that WWE Studios, Vince McMahon, <laughs> would have produced a project like this? It's crazy. Like I said, when I went to go see it, I worked at a movie theater at the time. So I was like, eh, whatever. It's a thriller. It's got Holly Berry in it. I guess I'll go see it. Like, uh, well, I don't care. What's the difference? And the moment I saw WWE Productions pop up i rolled my eyes and i was like "Ugh, at least it's only an hour and a half right but then by the end of the movie holy shit i was like oh my god Halle berry brought her freaking a game to this movie she freaking brings it and yeah her and abigail breslin both whew, they knocked it out of the park Right. No, I mean, really, it's just um, it's it's a showcase for both of them. I mean, yeah. if, if I were them, I'd put it in my reel. <laughs> oh, for sure. And uh, lastly, the little kind of thing that I like about this movie, is especially Halle Berry, is if you want to make a character seem smart, but you also have to show the audience or tell the audience what you're doing and get some exposition type stuff in there. I like that she goes on as a trainer. So she has to like ask them, what does this mean? So she already knows what it means, but she's testing them. Or there's moments where a character will be like, hey, you've got to do this. And she's like, I already did it. You know, like, yeah, I know that it's already done. And you're like, oh, yeah, I wouldn't have thought of that. But she already she's already two steps ahead of me. So it's cool that it's not just like this person who's an expert has at her job needs to be told what to do. It's like characters are coming to help her and she is like, yes, I'm aware I'm, I'm on it. And so just like that, that momentum, keeping up that momentum and that pace of like, wow, she's really proficient at her job. It makes the whole thing more tense because then the, the closer he gets to getting away, the more you feel for her because it's like, no, she's, she was so close. Yeah, I I feel like it, it's even like that scene makes what she does in the end even better because she says it to the students. You can't make promises to the yeah. people reporting because you don't know what's going to happen to them and you have to deal with the ambiguity of not knowing most of the time what happens after the police are dispatched. 
Um, and she breaks that rule and she makes the promise. And not only that, she keeps the promise. Right. Oh, it's perfect. Flawless. So fierce. So fierce. But yeah, I, I think uh, Hallie, Hallie's got heart, man. She, she's got a lot of heart. Uh, I definitely agree. This movie, this movie is a great showcase for that. Um, and so, yeah, I'm wondering as we get into crush territory, there's obviously two, two big obvious choices here, but I'm wondering if what, what you're going to go with. Halle Berry's wig. No, um, (laughs) I, I, I really love Jordan's character. It's so hard not to choose Jordan, not to choose Halle Berry. If I couldn't choose Halle Berry, um, I would maybe choose her coworker, the one male dispatcher who's kind of cute. The guy in the wheelchair? Oh, he was in a wheelchair? Yeah, it, it only shows it for like one scene. He wheels up and he goes... Hey, I got a call on that thing, and they're like, "Trace it" or something, and he rolls away. But. Oh, I d- I did not notice that, but uh, yeah, it's so hard for me to choose anybody other than Halle Berry because she's so good in this movie, and she just perfectly captures for me what it means to be a strong woman. You don't have to be the physically strongest. You don't have to be the toughest or the most badass you can be strong in in other ways, in ways that are feminine, that we look at as weak, but are her ultimate strengths, being an amazing communicator, listener, understanding and empathizing, all of the things that, you know, are stereotypes of what it means to be a woman and that people laugh at, like it it's not something that's an enormous strength or skill. Yeah. Uh, no, I agree. Um, my crush in this movie, others, you know, obviously the, the obvious too, but I like the, um, the female coworker. Oh, her, just, her manager. No, the, the other coworker who just like sits behind her and they have that little small <gasps> chit chat and then, you know, she she helps her out every now and then. But it's just, again, if you're going to go with reaction shots and when to use them, like, this this is a character who knows what Holly Berry's going through. And she can't help Holly Berry at all. But you see her sitting there helpless. And it just emphasizes how helpless Holly Berry is. Because Holly Berry is not only helpless in the situation, but she has to at least try to do something. This lady can't even do anything. So you feel it's just, it's kind of just an extension of Halle Berry's helplessness. And I think for a character who's got not that much to do in the movie, other than just, you know, kind of amplify what Halle Berry's feeling. I thought, you know, like, yeah, she did a really great job just kind of sitting in the background. And, and again, like, just doing really good reacting throughout the whole movie. I feel like I've seen that actress in other things. Could be. Uh, I know that the boss, the supervisor looked a bit familiar, but um, yes. Yeah. I don't know. Um, Did you find, did you find remixing this movie to be 
easy or difficult or? Actually, it was both because I had a ton of steam at the beginning. And then when I got to um, sort of end of middle third act territory, I thought, how the hell do I wrap this movie up? If I keep just writing stream of consciousness, we're going to be here all day and my pitch is going to be way too long. Um, And so at a certain point I decided to sketch out the rest and think, you know, okay, well maybe this can happen. Maybe that can happen. It could go this way. Here's the direction I want it to go. But it was like, I had a really clear picture of the beginning of the story and then I completely went off the rails. I don't know about you. I found both of these very hard to do. (laughs) So both of mine are very more big picture-esque kind of half-baked pitches that I'll have to stumble my way through and hopefully hopefully find the movie as I go. we'll, We'll produce for each other. Yeah. All right. Did you want me to go first? Yeah. Can't wait to hear it. All right. I decided to just call the movie Call Me. But, um, you know, call me, beat me if you want to reach me. Uh, So Jordan Turner, she's a 911 operator in L.A. with a cop boyfriend. But one day, Jordan's life gets turned upside down when she gets a 911 call from a mysterious male stranger with a British accent. And he tells Jordan his name is Tom. Uh, Tom tells Jordan that he knows he's going to die where he is. He's in the trunk of a car in a mafia warehouse filled with illegal drugs and weapons. Even though he's sure that the police won't make it in time, he still wants them to get the drop on the warehouse. And he'll, he says, you see, I'm a spiteful fucker, you know, and like a like a British accent. Um, so Jordan traces the phone's location and she tells Tom that the police are on their way. And then Tom asks her to remain on the line until the end, meaning when they kill him. And he asks her a bunch of personal questions, but he's also really flirty and British. They banter. He makes her laugh, even though it's like a really terrible situation. And then uh, they're interrupted by loud sounds and shouting. And Tom signs off with, sorry, love, it's already done. Uh, So I decided to incorporate that in my movie. So then Jordan hears gunshots and the line disconnects. Uh, Afterwards, Jordan's manager and coworkers tell her she did the best. Um, But Jordan is so shook up, she decides to switch to a training position at the 911 center. And then worse, her cop boyfriend hears about the call, but then he really overreacts and accuses Jordan of flirting with the person reporting on the per- on purpose, and he breaks up with her. Uh, Jordan says that she wishes she had never picked up Tom's call. Ugh. Mm. Uh, so then one day she is walking into the office to start her new role as a trainer, and she sees that there is a new security man in the lobby of the building, and he winks at her. When Jordan gets to her office, her manager asks if she saw Dan, the security man. Shout out to Penny Reed, who I lifted that from. If you're into romance novels, Dan, the security man is hot. 
but uh, the manager then goes on about how hot he is, and Jordan tentatively agrees, but she's like, ah, I'm really just not looking for a relationship right now because she just got dumped. Uh, and then later that day, she's showing the students around the center and has them observe a call in progress. And she thinks the caller is Tom at first, but then it's a fake out. Mm-hmm. Um, so she's, you know, she's still thinking about him. Uh, she finishes out her day and she's sitting uh, in the break room eating when her cell phone rings and it's Tom. Uh, she's surprised and he's all smarmy. She's like, you're alive. And he's like, because of you, darling. And now it's my turn to save you. Get under the table. Jordan is confused, but then she does what he says and sees two officers come in the room and Tom informs her that they're on Don Torino's payroll and they're looking for her. So then we get a nice scene, kind of like, you know, when Morpheus directs Neo out of his office, it's like that with Tom directing Jordan. Yeah. Uh, well, she's trying to ask him what the hell is going on and and why he can tell where she is. Uh, but he's very obtuse and smart in his answers, and he talks in riddles, but he's all sexy about it, kind of like Richard Armitage. It's pretty much exactly what I wrote down, just FYI. Um, So Jordan makes it out. She demands that Tom tell her why they're chasing her, and he confesses that he has a flash drive filled with blackmail on the dawn, Uh, And then after the shootout with the police at the warehouse, some of the gangsters escaped and then tapped their informants in the police station to give them the audio of the 911 call. The Don is convinced, based on the flirtatious banter during the call, that Tom will try to get in touch with Jordan or possibly give her the flash drive. And that's why he sent people to kidnap and murder her. So Jordan is pissed. This is all Tom's fault. Uh, Tom agrees, but it's He's also got this sort of cavalier, unflappable Bugs Bunny vibe. It's kind of like, you know, he's just, he's he's a cool guy. Right. Uh, He directs Jordan over the phone to a safe house. And then when she gets to the location, she sees that it's a strip club. And she's like, is this, am I going to get protection from one of your sleazy exes or something? And he says, no, my former partner. So then Tom tells her to ask for Alaska and that Tom sent her there for a teddy bear. So Jordan goes into the club. She finds Alaska, a redneck stripper with an attitude. And when she says the word teddy bear, Alaska is shocked. She leads Jordan through the women's restroom to a hidden door because everybody knows no one goes to the women's restroom in a strip club. Uh, (laughs) And then... And then they go through the hidden door and it leads to a small room with a kitchenette. And then when Alaska closes the door, she reveals her real voice, a British accent. And so she's like, oh, you must be really in the shit then, eh? Uh, And Jordan tries to get info on Tom, but Alaska won't give it to her. But Alaska muses that Tom must really care if she sent her here. And then they hear yells and shooting outside. Alaska opens a closet and reveals it's filled with guns. She selects a semi-auto and asks Jordan, would you like one? Um, But of course, Jordan is the fish out of water in this scenario. So she's like, oh, no. Uh, And then Alaska makes Jordan stay with her because they're safer together. So there's a shootout in the club. The mafia guys are there. Alaska is navigating cover and shooting back. Uh, She and Jordan make it behind the bar 
and then as they're shooting at the bad guys, she pulls out her phone and Jordan's like, what are you doing? And then Alaska says, oh, I'm calling Tom to make that asshole explain himself. Um, so the idea is that there's constant gags where we're calling, we never see Tom until the Mm -hmm. end of the movie, but Tom is involved. We're calling Tom. I kind of based my premise off of jumping Jack flash, the movie with the Whoopi Goldberg, where again, like she's, she's, uh, being directed by this guy who she's never seen, but she's into, um, so she calls Tom and it's funny because why are you trying to have this phone call during a shootout? How can you do two things at once? But these mysterious MI6 people, they're just cool like that. Uh, so she, uh, calls him and she's like, hear that Tom, what are Don Torino's men doing in my club? Uh, she listens, she shoots she looks at Jordan and looks like she's checking her out. And she says, she is, but I don't understand the point of that. <laughs> um, so he directs them outside. They get away. They see that there's a guy in the convertible out there. And Jordan says, Tom. But then the man scoffs and says, I hate that bloody wanker. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> so again, like we're, we, we're learning bits and pieces about Tom. Uh, So they drive off into the night. The driver, Roger, basically outlines all of Tom's negative traits. So he's a player. He's a wild card, loose cannon, blah, blah, blah. And Alaska's like, yeah, all of that's true, but he's also romantic and he's caring. So Jordan is listening while her two protectors are just arguing back and forth about how much Tom sucks. Right. (laughs) <laughs> and she doesn't know what the truth is. And then this is the point where I got stuck. The idea is so the group travels to a safe house and then they have to figure out what to do next, how to meet the bad guys and to get the flash drive into the right hands without getting killed. So my idea was that we find a way to bring all of the characters together to a fancy dress party, like, I don't know, a a gala for Lyme disease or something. Uh, So we get to have Halle Berry all gussied up and and all the characters gussied up and maybe uh, Alaska gets injured and Jordan has to take her place in the plan as a decoy. Uh, And then it's Jordan against the mafia guys and they're trying to kill her to go after the flash drive. And who comes to her rescue but the new handsome security guard from earlier in the movie? You, she asks. And he says, me, in Tom's voice. Tom takes care of the bad guys. And then he surprises Jordan with the statement, oh, I think I might be in love with you. And then Jordan's like, you're crazy. doesn't matter that you're as hot as you sound on the phone or that she thinks she likes him. She'd be a fool to fall for this guy. He's so smarmy. He basically almost got her killed. But then he says, sorry, love, it's already done. Boom. End of the movie. Whoa. I probably kissed too, but. Right, but, you yeah, know, well, it's, yeah. it's already done. She's already into him. Yeah, I like it. Um, yeah, I think it's funny that we both kind of went 
with like a spy, a spy kind of theme. Um, yeah, it basically is just like the movie Spy with Melissa McCarthy. Right. <laughs> yeah, my movie is basically Spy with Melissa McCarthy meets Die Hard. So it's kind of kind of the same. It's it's got a, it's got USBs in it. Mine has USBs oh, in you, it. You have a, a MacGuffin flash drive. Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, yeah. So I didn't have a good name for mine. Uh, like I like the idea of something to do with support. So mm-hmm. I, I like you know like technical support, but also emotional support. But I don't have like a good like other than just the name support. I don't have like a good title so well i'll have to hopefully come up with one by the end like support me or i'll support you i something something like that but um i'm gonna start out with jordan who is a thankless customer service phone person and you know she never gets to go anywhere and she's got like an a-hole husband and she's got a boss who rides her all the time and you know she, she never gets thanked for anything she's you know she just deals with all these a-holes who call in and then she helps them with all their technical problems uh and you know they're all mean to her even though she helps them you know at the end of the day and stuff and so she's just kind of like ugh, she's just kind of fed up with her job and then we meet casey who is a young intern And she does like a really cool walk and talk with her boss and her boss is kind of, you know, devil wears Prada kind of, you know, queen bee, really mean, really strict kind of person. And it's Casey's first day and she's really excited to start at this job and she has to make copies using this USB stick. And, you know, it's like, what are the copies of? And it's like, it's confidential or, you know, I don't know, something stupid or silly. But then Casey goes to make copies and the copier goes to reformat the USB, which, oh my God, that's terrifying. If you're asked on your very first day to make copies of something and then the USB drive gets reformatted, oh my God, what are you going to do? You're going to have to call technical support. So Casey calls Jordan and they're sort of going over the phone like, she's panicking and you know jordan's like no calm down take a deep breath you know we're both capricorns or whatever and so then right in the middle of all this terrorists take over the building <laughs> what, what? Uh, die hard style <laughs> yeah spy meets die hard so it turns out that this place is like again this place is like a safe house it's like a front for cia spy stuff and the the product the the whatever she was going to print out on the USB was coded material ciphered material that was sensitive information so the bad guys want that information but she's the only one who has it and the USB hard drive has been wiped so she's got like the only copy of it maybe it only printed one copy before it got busted or i don't know something So then we just have a bunch of gimmicks where Casey has to talk to Jordan and Jordan has to talk Casey through this kind of spy stuff, even though Jordan doesn't know how to be a spy. She's a technical support person. So she's basically got to like 
Google how to be a spy and go through the set, you know, technical support is all about going through the steps. So she's got to like very deliberately go through the steps of how to do spy type stuff. So some of the gimmicks can be like, maybe there's a, she finds a bag, maybe Casey finds a bag of guns, but they're all disassembled for some reason. And so Casey's got to like assemble the guns, but it's like, which part goes with which gun and oh which Oh my God, that would be impossible go- to support over the phone. Yeah. And so it's like, oh, it's the one that has this marking on it, or it's the bullets that look like they're this big. Well, how did they all look the same size? You know, it's like little gimmicks. And then once Casey starts to shoot, she's not a very good shot, obviously. So Jordan has to look up, you know, proper shooting techniques. And, you know, it's just very silly where it's you're walking someone how to, you're walking someone through how to be a spy and neither one of you knows how to do it, right? Uh, so maybe there's like a bomb. She's got to dis. She's got to like dismantle a bomb, dis- diffuse a bomb. And so you know, there's very much like a workflow that you've got to go through when you're going through a bomb. And maybe there's like they're arguing over little words, or you know, like they're getting snippy with each other because it's, you know, it's like a very tense situation and it's like your attitude's not helping and it's like, well, sorry, I'm about to blow up or, you know, just very funny little mishaps, uh, but very tense. And then maybe there's an interrogation. And so like, maybe there's a different language barrier. Maybe the terrorist is from a different country. And so uh, I know you're probably a fan of I Love Lucy, right? I've watched it casually like anybody who stayed up to watch Nick at night. (laughs) Sure. So there's one bit from I Love Lucy, which is great, which is she is in prison or something. She gets pulled off to a prison cell or whatever. And there's a cop and she's in a foreign country or something. And so basically there's Lucy and there's a guy and they have to communicate, but they don't speak the same language. So then it it essentially comes down to she speaks English, this guy speaks French, and then he, this other guy speaks German, and this other guy speaks Italian, and they all kind of speak one of the other's language. So there's a lot of like, you know, it's like a game of telephone where you're going back and forth, and there's a lot of like funny little, I don't know, just look it up. Uh, I Love Lucy translation scene, foreign language scene. Uh, so maybe we, can have something like, maybe we can have something like that where we have a conference call and there's b- a bunch of different languages being spoken and a bunch of different like, you know, fast paced back and forth thing of like, no, he didn't mean to say this or this word translates to this, you know, silly little things. Uh, and then maybe there's like hand to hand combat. So, you know, um, uh, you know, maybe <laughs> maybe Jordan is like. You know, one one way you can fix technology is just to hit it. And so maybe she's telling Casey, like, hit it, hit it, hit it. And, you know, like everyone at the office thinks she's talking about a printer, but really she's talking about a person. Um, you know, if she's got to fight people hand to hand style and she's like, OK, one thing you got to do is psych them out. So pretend that you're really good at martial arts, you know. And so maybe it's a five on one scenario. And so she ends up like bluffing her way to convince two people to leave or three people to leave. And then there's a little fight, but of course Casey gets kidnapped. Right. So, so is this kind of like the jerk where Casey is incompetent, but nobody realizes it? 
it's not that she's incompetent. It's just that she's clearly. Or she out- has no idea what she's doing. Right. She has no idea what she's doing. She's clearly outclassed. And so anything that she has to do, she's kind of got to like do it on the spot, learn on the fly and like fake her confidence. Um, so yeah, it's just like, you know, two people who don't know what they're doing, figuring it out together. Um, and then the whole time while all this is going on, some of the some of the terrorists are dropping hints about the specialist. And so we get little little tidbits about the specialist, right? Like maybe the specialist is from Sweden and maybe the specialist likes a certain kind of candy. They're like, better have the candy ready for the specialist. So once Casey gets kidnapped, Jordan has to basically go and save her. So, of course, this is going to be some of that fantastical territory where, like, oh, they're both in New York City or they're both on the same block. You know, it turns out, you know, very, like, collateral style. Uh, Jamie Foxx is like, oh, yeah, he's got to go save the lady who's right there, you know. Um, and so then when when Jordan gets there, she has to pretend to be the specialist. So she's got to use all these tidbits she's gathered over the phone about the specialist to bluff her way and fake being the specialist. Like Jamie Foxx and and Collateral. Right, yeah, when he has to pretend to be Vincent. And so then, essentially, her and Jordan, uh, or Jordan and Casey hook up, they escape, they they start arguing, and then Jordan wants to continue to save... Well, yeah, so Jordan wants to continue to save the building, but Casey is like, F that. I didn't know this was a CIA safe house thing. I just wanted a job at a whatever, like a fashion company or whatever the place is that they're pretending to be. Uh, So Casey goes to leave and Jordan is going to stay and fight. But then Jordan has to like find her way around the building and she has no idea what she's doing but then casey accidentally stumbles into a security office and you know yada 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 casey now has to call jordan over the pa system and with all the terrorists listening she has to guide jordan to the MacGuffin stuff and so because the bad guys are listening now they have to like communicate almost using like a charades system type thing where like Jordan can hear Casey, but Casey can't hear Jordan, but Jordan has, or Casey has access to the security cameras so she can see Jordan. So there's a lot of like, I don't know. There's a lot of like double speak or there's a lot of like hints, maybe, you know, over the course of the movie, they develop a bond and a connection and like inside jokes so she can be like, you know, instead of saying go to the kitchen, she can say something in like inside joke territory where it's like, hey, you've got to go to this room. And so the bad guys don't know that she means the kitchen, but Jordan does. So, you know, again, yada, yada, yada. We basically have to get two keys to override a system. And then Jordan and Casey at the end, you know, team up together to fight the final Hans Gruber villain and they turn the keys. And at the end of the day, uh, the CIA comes in and says like, Hey, you guys make a really good team. You guys should be partners. And then they end the movie like working together and becoming super spy partner ladies. And, you know, I don't want it to be like overtly sexual stuff, but you know, maybe they can like be a little intimidating, little kissy at the end, you know, like, 
instead of a guy and a girl being all kissy, it can be girl and girl being all kissy. It's a rom-com. It. <laughs> and Halle Berry's the hero. Right. Um, so, yeah, it's just like a general goofy Melissa McCarthy spy vehicle where, you know, again, two two people who don't know what they're doing having to do it. Sometimes you just get called in <laughs> back into the field. I like it. I like that we both went with uh, with spy elements. Yeah, it seems. I mean, that seemed like the obvious way to go. Yeah, but then I that's still true. had a lot of trouble kind of <laughs> ironing out some of those details. Well, there is actually, you know, it's funny you say that because I feel like uh, Key and Peel did a skit, which I think was riffing off of the call, but then it ended up being kind of like a cutesy rom-com where a guy calls in to 911 because a woman passes out in the street before him and he sees that she's really cute. Uh, and he's like, oh, she's so beautiful. This could be the love of my life. And then he passes out and she wakes up and then she calls the same 911 dispatcher and it's describing him and how cute he is. And so, I mean, I could have, you know, expanded on that premise, but they did so well with it that I thought, right. eh, let Key and Peel have it. <laughs> um, yeah, so I'm curious because I had seen the call before. So I'm curious, had you ever seen Boomerang? No, okay. I boomerang was on my list because here's here's one of my things when it came to this podcast and my philosophy in general when it comes to rom-coms, which is that there is a mistaken notion that a rom-com has to be one particular way. I think when people think of rom-coms, they think about Notting Hill, they think about them being overwhelmingly white and showing, you know, one type of person in a rom-com setting. So I want to expand people's ideas of what a romantic comedy is. Romantic comedies can be about family as well as about relationships. Romantic comedies don't all come from the U.S., there's right. a huge industry of romantic comedies in India, for example, you know, like I, I, I never want people to feel that I'm always going to just choose mainstream or what's been, what has been thought of as sort of the mainstream romance canon. And it really isn't like, I think that there's this, there's this sort of mistaken assumption that, the mainstream movies are for everyone and then movies like Boomerang are only for black people or something like that. And I don't think that that's true. I think that if you have an expansive idea and you want to learn everything about what's out there for a genre, then you can't restrict yourself to seeing only one type of movie or ruling out a movie simply because the leads and characters don't look like you or come from the same background. So Boomerang, even though I hadn't seen it because I just I just didn't grow up with that movie, um, it was on my list because I knew it was a rom-com uh, and I knew that it, it 
to me, it, it does all the things that a rom-com does. And I don't see why we wouldn't talk about Boomerang next to other rom-coms of that era, but it just doesn't get talked about that way, if at all. Yeah, I, I've never even heard of this movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think this is one of, so I was reading up on it online and I guess as Eddie Murphy was leaving SNL, he really liked working with this pair of writers from the show. They, you know, they wrote really well for him. And they wrote this script for Boomerang. And the director, and I don't know how the director, uh, Headland, got involved, but um, they, they wrote this movie with Eddie in mind, and they wanted to write a movie where a character gets put through the paces and has to suffer and learn. They wanted to write a movie where Eddie's character has to learn and change and grow. And, and, and I think also they wanted, here's the thing why, again, I think that our ideas of rom-coms are so narrow and they need to be more expansive because rom-coms are about selling people a fantasy of relationships and love and what you can have with love in your life. And it it's meant to be, you know, not anti-reality, but more than reality to be different. And I was really shocked to hear that this movie got accused of being science fiction in some uh, critical responses because, but specifically because they showed an office building or a company building where most of the people who worked there are black and they, they like Marcus Eddie's character is the head of marketing at his company. And, you know, his friends have similar jobs and, and for some reason, critics were like, oh, well, it's science fiction that there would be this mega successful company with only black employees when that's not necessarily true just because you haven't seen it. And then also, why is it, why is that science fiction? But then Meryl Streep's humongous kitchens and Nancy Meyer movies, that's reality. You know, right. it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. I think everybody should be permitted to be able to create that fantasy and have a romantic comedy. Yeah, I don't know. It definitely, I mean, it definitely kind of stuck out that this movie had a majority of black people in it. But it didn't feel like it at no point did I feel that it was unrealistic. <laughs> you know what and I mean? And I didn't either. But yeah. that, that's why I was surprised to hear like, oh, wow, this movie is science fiction. I don't Yeah, I don't know. Um, All rom-coms are science fiction. <laughs> right. It, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So you want to get into a boomerang? Boomerang. Yes. Tell us the story, Brett. Ooh. Well, Boomerang is about advertising executive Marcus Graham and how he is a serial womanizer prone to lying to seduce women, but unwilling to commit until he finds the quote unquote perfect woman. His friends Tyler and Gerard tell him his standards are too high, 
particularly his habit of judging women by their feet. Uh, so in the first sort of bed down that Eddie Murphy gets into with his first fling, he checks her feet and she's just got these atrocious looking feet. And that's kind of a deal breaker. I would uh, definitely fail Marcus's foot test. My feet are gnarly. <laughs> I don't want them touched or looked at. It's it. It wounded me a little to see a woman so beautiful judged by her, I mean, admittedly hideous feet. Yeah, I don't have the best feet either. So we're in the same club on that one. Um, but it, it did kind of remind me a, a little bit of like Seinfeld, because Seinfeld is a very successful with women character who also has very surface level judgment deal breakers. She ate peas them. one at a time. <laughs> uh, so Marcus's company is acquired by cosmetics mogul Lady Eloise. How do you say her name again? Lady uh, Eloise, yes. Eloise. Uh, and so she invites him to her home with amorous intentions, and he spends the night with her, believing he will be promoted. And it's kind of silly, but it's also kind of sexy because it's Catwoman, Eartha Kitt. Yeah, when she, when she meows, like, growls like that, I was just, woo, Catwoman! Like, I, so exciting. I mean, um, I know our crushes are for the horror movie, but I love Eartha Kitt so much, oh. but she's not even my biggest crush from this movie. Uh, I just want to note that uh, Eartha Kitt's lingerie in this scene is beautiful, tasteful, gorgeous. Yeah, it's, I was very impressed with it. I was, you know, uh, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't like, I don't know. It I also like that. Or, I don't know, I don't know words for fashion, but it was, it was nice. I also really liked that um, whether you're a man or a woman or whatever you want to be, um, sleeping your way to the top is just a bad look, no matter the gender. Right. Um, yeah. So Marcus thinks he's going to be promoted, right? Because it's Lady Eloise's company. So she's in charge. And obviously, if she likes him and likes him in bed, then she's going to promote him. Uh, however... The next day, he meets Jacqueline Boyer, who has been made head of his department instead. Oopsies. So at a party to celebrate the merger, eccentric fashion diva Stranger is Great announced uh, is announced as the new face of the company. And Jacqueline introduces Marcus to colleague Angela Lewis, whom he's... Uh, who he he sets her up with Gerard. Oh, he immediately recognizes that she's a big old nerd and then passes her off to Gerard, who's also a big nerd. Right. Yeah. He's kind of just saying like, uh, you two are sort of the henchman equivalent in a rom-com. So I ain't got time for that. Just hang out with this guy. I don't know. You seem like two wholesome nerdy people. Maybe you'll, Maybe you'll be able to geek out over something and get along. Um, but Marcus really wants to woo Jacqueline. And he really, really tries, but finds it kind of kind of hard to do. Uh, and then he invites her over to dinner at his apartment under the guise of 
having it be a business dinner, but of course he makes it into more of a sexy, classy dinner, and she ignores his advances and is more interested in the basketball game on TV. And to, to be fair to Jacqueline, I mean, having watched The Last Dance recently, this is 1997, right? Like, this is, isn't this like the second three-peat? I think this is... Uh, I think this is 92, but either way, yeah, we're talking peak Michael Jordan stuff. I, I don't know. I'm kind of on, I'm kind of with Jacqueline on this one. That was an important game to watch. Um, I, you know, I, I am not a big basketball guy. So I, basketball is like my least favorite sport in the whole wide world. Although I did watch Uncut Gems and whew, watching the final basketball game in that movie was intense. Um, but she says, I want to watch the Knicks game. And then it seems like she's rooting for the Knicks, but then she's hyping up and talking about how great Michael Jordan is. I don't know. I mean, I I'm think not... it's impossible to not want to see Michael Jordan play when Michael Jordan plays. Right. Uh, I can buy it. I can buy it. I don't, I don't care enough about basketball to throw a hissy fit over that, but it was kind of <laughs> something that like, you know, it's a detail that I noticed. Um so uh, they go on to a business trip to New Orleans and Jacqueline unexpectedly invites Marcus into her room and they have a sexy times. And afterwards, he is relieved to find that her feet are uh, gorgeous. She has got some sexy, sexy feet. Uh, but then here's a little bit of a twist. Marcus actually begins to fall for Jacqueline and he finds himself sort of, you know, wearing the, the lady shoes in terms of he wants to be intimate with her. He wants to share his feelings with her and he doesn't like the fact that he's being used for sex and that she's leaving him money on the dresser and leaving oh, to go it. to work early. Yeah. And I so, loved when she left money on his dresser. I love everything Robin <laughs> Givens does in this movie to abuse and mistreat Eddie Murphy. And it is abuse and mistreatment, but I'm just eating it up. Yum, 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 yum. Uh, so, yeah. So she's kind of given him the Eddie Murphy, Marcus Graham treatment. Uh, and so discovering that she has bragged about their exploits and adventures to Stranger, uh, whose advances he is forced to reject. Some very strong advances. <laughs> some uh... Stranger is everything. And the fact that she got a the fact that she yelled pussy in a restaurant multiple times, I, I loved every scene with Stranger. I'll have what she's having. Uh, yep. <laughs> uh, so Marcus confronts Jacqueline and she ends the affair. So Marcus finds himself on the a bad end of some office gossip and his work begins to suffer. And after a major business proposal is almost ruined, uh, ja although that was a funny commercial, right? With the afterbirth. I loved the afterbirth commercial. No, I feel like this movie has some fun, cute, little campy moments. And yeah. like any good rom-com, it's not just about your leads. It's the entire extended universe. You've got the yeah. creative director who's crazy. You've got 
um, Chris Rock as the male guy. Oh yeah, I'm a, I, I've been here nine days and I've been on time most of the time. <laughs> um, and so Jacqueline forces Marcus to take a few paid weeks off instead of being fired. He comes very close to being fired. So during this time, he spends time with Angela, the sexy Holly Berry, who tries but to She's bring, a nerd here. She is a nerd, but she's also really sexy because she's a confident woman who's good at what she does. Uh so she tries to bring him out of his funk. And after hosting a Thanksgiving dinner with Tyler and Gerard and Gerard's uh, eccentric parents, to say the least, Martrick and Angela end up sleeping together. And this ooh, causes ooh, Gerard ooh, ooh. to uh, become very upset. He becomes furious, believing Marcus will mistreat Angela like he has his past conquests. And this is where... Uh, I mean, we'll get into it at the end, but this is where the movie really just kind of starts to fall apart. Cause this is like an hour and a half into the movie. And then we get into the rom-com of Angela and Marcus. Wait, but you didn't think up until now there were any funny moments? There, there were a few funny moments, but there weren't, we'll get into it. All right. So Marcus and Angela, they end up moving in together super quick. Uh, she is hurt when he downplays the relationship in a phone call to Jacqueline. Uh, Marcus having regained his confidence proves, you, you know, that he actually is sexy to Jacqueline. And so with his newfound mojo, they end up sleeping together again. This of course hurts Angela. She kind of discovers this confronts him about it in the morning after he sneaks in super late at night. He explains that he is confused uh, because he doesn't know really who to be with and Angela breaks up with him and takes a promotion at another company. And then Marcus realizes that he's in love with Angela. And so he basically goes to grovel to her. And, you know, the, there's the scene with the kids and she, you know, she's a teacher for kids and he uses the kids to kind of get her back. And I, I don't know. I just found the whole ending of the movie to be very underwhelming. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, a, a I, lot of this, a lot of this romance, I, I am not a big fan of, of movies where they just really pedal to the metal zero to 60 show like, oh my God, I'm in love with you now. And in this movie, a lot of the, the romance side is, is telling and not showing. We, 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 we hear him talk about how he wants to be intimate with someone, but we don't really get to see it. And then his groveling at the end is like the most cliche sixth grader love. No Valentine's card where he's like, I can't breathe without you. And she's like, all right, I'm going to kiss you now. Cause you said some nice words. And I'm like, ah, this was totally not earned. I don't know. I I could have gone for some more groveling. You know how much I love a good grovel. Um, a, a good grovel can be very tasty when someone has learned that they've been an ass and then they genuinely and passionately grovel and and say they're sorry. I, I don't think that this was quite the passionate grovel. I was also surprised at how quickly she took him back. Um, but I also feel like, again, 
this is something where I feel like a lot of films have a really one-dimensional and reductive view when it comes to how relationships deal with cheating and whether or not that's something that totally implodes a relationship or that's simply a conflict. Well, not simply, but it's a conflict that you meet head on and you deal with. And up until the final scene, she didn't back down as far as the kind of love that she deserved. Like, let's talk about the scene where she completely dresses him. Like, if, if ever there was a preview of the star making to come for Halle Berry, it has to be that moment when she says to him, love should have brought your ass home last night. I had chills. She's great in the movie. And yeah, her character is great in the movie. I just wish... This movie goes half Amelie because we spend more time with him and Joseph, with him and Jacqueline. I, I feel like, what did your name do that was really good? What did When Harry Met Sally do that was really good? Those movies condensed a lot of moments into montage to, to, to show you things and not tell you things. And then it let the characters do the work. I thought this movie was, uh, this movie, the first 50 minutes of the movie could have been condensed down to a 10 minute montage and the inciting incident, the, the, you know, the, the kicker that gets the story going off the, the, his downward peak, his sort of, um, what was the movie with Ben Foster in high school where he gets dumped? Get over it. Get over it. He should have been gotten over it. 25 minutes into this movie where she has to help him and maybe he's trying to rebound with other women and he's, you know, he's discovering certain things about himself, showing, not telling, like just the fact that their relationship kind of comes out of nowhere. And then it's all of a sudden they're living together. And I just, I think it's implied that she being a nice girl was carrying a torch for him since the get-go, but then she recognized that he was more into Jacqueline and she tried to Cyrano the situation between him and Jacqueline by suggesting that they go to the jazz club and that going to the jazz club would be romantic. But in a classical Cyrano situation, of course, the one that you are helping to woo the, the object um, you want that object too. And so right. I think I think Jacqueline clocks her on it when she approaches her and says, hey, his work is being affected. I will tell you, okay, I do think we could have spent way more time with Halle Berry, with Aunt Angela, and made that the bulk of the movie. I definitely could have gotten way, way more Angela um, and, and more of her arc. But I thought that the worst thing that happened was that Marcus fucking took credit for Angela's idea and all of her hard work. The entire, so the, they, you know, the creative director messes up the Strange ad, the right. afterbirth ad, and it's crazy. And then Angela is tells um, Eddie Murphy, I've got an idea. And they go back to the office 
And they cut together existing footage of Strange slash Grace Jones, and then they do a voiceover for the commercial. But all of that was worked on by Angela while Eddie Murphy just sat there and commented on whether or not there was a nipple in that one shot. Right. Um, but everything, the whole ad was Angela's idea and her execution, but then he just takes credit for the whole thing. And when Jacqueline calls him to tell him what a great job he did, he offers to call Jacqueline back and say, hey, Angela's really the one you should be praising. She's the one who should come uh, to this thing. But then when Angela says, oh, no, that's okay, he just goes anyway. But it just, it seems that, like, I think that's yeah. why the groveling wasn't enough for me, because he used her hard work as a jumping point to sleep with his ex. Yeah, he's a jerk in the movie. He, um, I don't know. I just, I felt like, I mean, we just watched When Harry Met Sally. So that movie's got a lot of great tags at the end of scenes. You know, it's got a, it's not only does the entire movie have a bunch of setups and callbacks, but each individual scene has little setups, callbacks, little tags at the end to kind of put a little ribbon on the scene. This movie just felt, I don't know. It, it just, it, it didn't feel invigorating. It just felt like every scene was kind of, I, I could have used more. In, in a way, it reminded me of uh, Night of the Living Deb, where a lot of the jokes were like kind of half-baked. And it's like, I could have used more. I could have used more of it. And in fact, there's a clapper joke in this movie. There's a clapper joke in uh, Night of the Living Deb. So maybe I'm just not a fan of movies that have clappers in them. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like Boomerang worked for me more than Night of the Living Dead. If I were to, or yeah, if I were to compare them, I feel like this movie works for me more. If only for Love Should Have Brought Your Ass Home last night uh, and every scene involving Grace Jones. Every single scene involving Grace Jones for me feels like manna from heaven. When she does the huge entrance where she's flown in via helicopter inside of a Dumbo Drop style box and then it opens to reveal a palanquin, I think, or a, or a whatever, a, a giant um queen like chariot queen chariot being hand carried by four muscular men it was like shangela's surprise box entrance onto drag race times 10 it just it was so over the top every time she said pussy every time she came up for a name for the perfume like steel vagina I wrote in my notes, Strange is everything. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, for me, this movie just felt really dated in some ways. Yeah. For example, there's a joke about trans people at the beginning of the movie that made me feel a little uncomfortable. And I will say that my thinking about that has really evolved after watching this 
documentary that I watched recently. It's it's not my love bite, but I'll throw it out there. Disclosure. And one of the things that the interviewees mentioned in Disclosure is how hurtful it is to watch a movie and see someone react to who you are with literal disgust, like, ugh, ugh gross, you know? And yeah. having watched that documentary, it was so impossible for me to watch that scene and not think like, oh no, that's really hurtful. <laughs> so I, I feel like, you know, society has evolved since that movie was made, but it was, there was that, there was an intellectual disabilities moment where Eddie <laughs> Murphy <laughs> said stuff to the um, the movie ticket guy that I was like, yeah. oh, that's not funny. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, I liked uh, I always love any appearance of John Witherspoon in a movie when he showed up to Thanksgiving. I knew things were going to happen. Um, I feel like John Witherspoon is in every movie. Um, maybe I don't, maybe it's just that I don't have the same connection to the actual actors that I do with some other actors and some other movies that I grew up with. So that like, I don't, it just, it doesn't, again, it, it feels like the characters are, are, I get what they're going for, but it, I'm not exactly sold on it. I just... Like, I don't know, a lot of the characters that you're mentioning, especially the Strange character, it just didn't, I just didn't do it for me. Are you telling me that for you, Strange is not everything? Not, no, is not everything, no. Um, one movie from the 90s that is definitely dated, but I feel holds up a little bit better and is much more of a showcase uh, piece and like this movie didn't have any set pieces is is what I think it was missing. Uh, I just watched Multiplicity <laughs> with Michael Keaton and uh, that movie I th I thought that movie was great and uh, there is some dated oofy kind of elements where the main character's a jerk but he's supposed to be a jerk and at the end of the movie he does some grade A groveling and you see his point of view and you see him grow and change as a character. And so you see all these things happening. And by the end of the movie, you feel for him. By the end of this movie, I was like, eh, eh. Yeah, I will say that I enjoyed watching Eddie Murphy be punished by Robin, Gil Robin Givens much more than I enjoyed his redemption arc. Right. Yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah. So who did you want to kill the most from this movie? Oof. Uh, I don't I don't know. Maybe David Allen Greer? No! How dare you? David uh, Allen Greer is a treasure. Is he? I don't know. Uh, I, He's hilarious. I just, He's one of the greatest comedians of our time. No. No. I, I hope people write, write to us about this. I hope that they do. I, I'm asking... I'm asking for our eight listeners to come through for me, please. Uh, I don't have anything against David Ellen Greer, but his character in the movie was like, he's mad because he's gonna like I I get again I get what the character's going for, but it made it seem like they're like he was in love with her, but then he wasn't in love with her, but then I think like he might have been gay. 
but see, like I, I was wondering that for the whole movie, is that a joke or is that not a, it? Like, uh, it could have been more clear, you know. I need my comedy to be. I need it to be a little more, especially in a movie like this. I need it to be a little more flashy. <laughs> like, play with it, have fun with it. This movie didn't seem like it was having fun. It just seemed like it was going through the paces, and that. Oh my God, for 50 minutes. I, I just don't like movies where after 50 minutes, I feel like the movie's now just starting. Oof. That's fair. I think 25 fair. minutes, 25 minutes into multiplicity, he's got one, if not two clones. And we, we have hit, we have hit, uh, Michael Keaton versus Michael Keaton. I know you love a good clone fantasy. <laughs> Uh, how about you? It, it sounds like you probably had a lot harder time coming up with someone to kill for different reasons than I did. I think I would have killed the, um, the racist store worker who was profiling them for being in the suit shop. And I feel like, you know, a scene like that is, I mean, yeah, I want that guy to die. But I feel like like in a movie like this, sometimes a scene like that can be more effective for making you understand a person's experience than watching a really document like a really dry documentary on the 13th Amendment. It's like you know these characters, you know what kind of person or people they are. So to see them profiled like that, it's like what the hell are you doing? <laughs> um so yeah, I would kill that guy. Yeah. I mean, the character's a scumbag, but I again, I feel like that's another moment where it probably could have been played up a little bit more. Where it could I feel like you know. it could have been because they kept going back to these moments where Martin Lawrence's character would be like, yeah, that's racist or right. that's racist. And sometimes it was like real stretch, like asparagus spears. Uh, pool tables. Right. But then when this guy shows up, it's like, yes, that is racist. <laughs> but also his character is kind of, I mean, they're in a classy store and his character isn't like a, he's, he's the goofball. He's like the, he's like the homophobic, loud goofball type. So it's not like if he, if he had some sort of, gotcha moment where he was like oh this fabric is from he like if he sort of schooled the guy and said like oh you think i don't know my shit i do know my shit let me show you how much i know my shit i know my shit way more than you do like if he had yes ended the situation instead of just uh eddie murphy barking at the guy and then the guy jumping like that i don't know that it just seems like it could have you know again it could have been more i mean maybe but yeah that that's who i would choose um as far as my uh my uh kill from the movie maybe david allen greer's parents because they're so embarrassing yeah um it's always good though it's always good to have embarrassing characters who um who everyone knows they're embarrassing so it's kind of like they can get away with it 
the audacity <laughs> of having sex in your son's friend's bathroom during Thanksgiving. The audacity. Um so I'm 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 really curious to know what kind of horror spin you you put on boomerang because I had a lot of options to go with and I really wanted to make I really wanted to kind of do a giallo Italian horror movie people getting murdered at the workplace kind of movie but ultimately I just didn't have the the time to to cement a really good murder mystery so I don't know. We're gonna we're gonna see how this one goes, but um, for for my horror version, I'm I'm gonna go for more of like a training day meets executive PR ad agency guy. So in my version, Marcus is gonna star as like a top tier talent agency guy. And okay. Angela, Angela is like the new person who's coming in, like the hot new talent um, or hot new ad person who's going to come in and maybe get some some more people to join the agency. But everyone knows who Marcus is. Right. And so they they go around training day style where there's talks about this big merger with their company and another company or like a big crossover or something. So Eddie Murphy is afraid he's going to lose all of his clients to this new company. And so him and Angela have to go around and kind of convince all of the, the talent to stay with their agency. But the way you learn that Marcus does this is like, Denzel Washington in training day. Like maybe he's a little dirty. Maybe he's got some blackmail on all of these celebrities. So he's going around kind of, you know, hinting at the fact that he's going to, you know, let some of this dirt out to TMZ if they switch <laughs> places and whatnot. And so I don't have a lot of gimmicks or specific examples or anything, but basically Jacqueline is going to be the boss of the of the new talent agency that they're all going to go to. And so over the course of the movie, we're just going to have a lot of moving parts. So it's going to be like like training day, but in training day meets Guy Ritchie in the sense of snatch or lock, stock and smoking barrels where it's, you know, instead of having a bunch of different gangs, maybe one of the one of the actors has like a mob boss tie in. Maybe one of them has like a Scientology type, you know, cult tie in. Okay. Maybe, maybe one of them is a soap opera person. And if you know these <laughs> soap opera fans, they're super crazy and religious about their soap opera people. So maybe he I take you offense know. to that. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe you know, maybe there's like one person who's got like an ultra fan club who would do anything for them. And ultimately at the end of the day, Angela kind of has to maneuver her way around Jacqueline and Marcus and all of these different celebrities and their affiliations. And at the end of the day, there's a big meetup, like a big showdown at the warehouse. And so you've got the mob and Scientologists and soap opera fans and the two agencies and they all get together. And there's kind of a big moment where like Angela seems really in over her head, but then she's able to play everyone against each other and she's able to come out on top. 
And so you think she's really innocent and naive and that she's going to do the right thing. But then at the end of the day, she kind of like, she's not a bad guy, but she like out bad guys, all the bad guys to the point where she becomes the top bad guy, but then she uses her power kind of wisely. So it's kind of like a Nightcrawler thing where like at the end of Nightcrawler, it's like, oh, we've been following this bad guy around the whole movie, but then maybe like maybe they're not so bad, but then like but no, they're definitely bad. So at the end of the movie, Angela just kind of comes down on top and uh it's really hard to write those kind of lock stock and smoking barrels like multiple pieces moving part come together at the end movies, but that's the big pitch. That's the elevator pitch, which is just, we're going to have a lot of blackmail, a lot of deceit, a lot of people lurking in the shadows and you never know who's really on whose side. Um, but then Angela comes out on top. Of course, Marcus is going to have to get his comeuppance. So maybe yeah, he's got, some, he's got some blackmail that he doesn't want anyone to know about that ends up getting out. And Yeah. Maybe he gets, you know, trial by public and something bad happens. But yeah, that's all I got for Boomerang. Yeah, I have a I have a pretty short one for Boomerang too. I, I like I like that angle though. I feel like movies like uh what you described or like an Edgar Wright movie, some of them tend to live more on their storyboards than right. <laughs> in a script because they're just so, you know, like punch you in the face visuals. Uh yeah, no, I think that makes sense. My my pitch for uh, for this movie is also really short, mostly because I I got really into my character Tom from the uh, from the the call rom com. I I don't know, maybe it's because I've been watching uh, Legends of, of Tomorrow, and it made me remember how much I love John Constantine. I just you know, oh, I was yeah. like, oh, fun, smarmy Britishness. Um, but then with this movie, I decided to make it more of a supernatural Tales from the Crypty, um, mm. Dorian Gray almost type of episode. So I decided to call it Paint Job. All right. And uh, it's about Angela. She's happy in her role in the creative department of the cosmetic company, Lady Eloise. But then things change when the company merges uh, with a different company. And now she has to work with that marketing department from the new company. And suddenly she's getting passed over for promotion. She expected her new coworkers are sexist pigs. Uh, and it's clear that her coworker Marcus has risen to the top because he's sleeping with their boss, Jacqueline. Then one day, Angela is pushed over the edge. I imagine something like that day in Drag Me to Hell where just a bunch of petty abuses add up to making her just feel awful. And then to top it all off, she gets asked on a date by Tyler, uh, but she still agrees to go reluctantly. And then on the date, Tyler acts awful and he tries to force himself on Angela and then she fights him off and escapes. And then when she gets home, she just... She freaks out. She reacts to the trauma. She starts trashing her apartment uh, and she's just fucking had it. But then she pauses in front of her easel with a fresh blank canvas. Like it seems like maybe she's going to trash her art area too. 
but then she stops. And then she picks up a brush and starts painting. Time lapse, sunrise. Uh, we return to Angela and we see that the painting that she has made is Tyler with his eyes pecked out by crows. Angela feels better. Uh, and then she goes to the office and sees everyone is crying, they're sad, and they give her the news. Tyler is dead. The details of his death resemble the painting exactly. Angela realizes her art has powers. Uh, and as one does when they find out that they can paint things that actually happen, they start to abuse it. So she paints Marcus and Jacqueline breaking up. She paints Marcus falling in love with her. She paints scenes that push her ahead in the company. But still, one night, Marcus, away from Angela's influence, sleeps with Jacqueline again. Uh, and then when Angela finds out, she paints their deaths in revenge and uses the reputation she's gained to uh, earn the creative director position at a new company. But there was one person she forgot about. Good old Gerard, the only guy at the office that treated her with any respect, but also Marcus's best friend. So Gerard decides he's going to get to the bottom of what happened to everyone. Clues lead him to Angela's apartment. He finds the paintings, and then he's flipping through them. And then the last painting is of Angela herself in her new creative director boss lady getup. So Gerard knows what must be done. He sets fire to the painting of Angela. And then as the painting burns, Angela falls to the floor in a board meeting, shrieking. And then when she stops and she dies, it, her entire body appears to be covered in burns. Whoa. The end. The end. Yeah. I love... Uh... I love a good horror movie main character villain come up in death. Yeah, I was kind of thinking of, um, I said Tales from the Crypt because uh, there was a Tales from the Crypt episode where an artist starts painting with blood and starts mm. doing murders to, to fulfill his creative blood paintings that he starts selling. So yeah, I just, I like the idea of artist killers. Yeah. Did you ever see Velvet Buzzsaw on Netflix? No, I didn't. But it, it art art that can kill people definitely yeah. in in the same wheelhouse. Is it? Did you like it? Uh, I wanted to. <laughs> I really wanted to. But it's just one of those movies where after twenty minutes, thirty minutes, you know if you're gonna like it or not. And mm. it just, I just couldn't get into it. And um, I mean, there's a lot of cool stuff about it, but it's just it. it it had a lot of things that I like. It just was tweaked and calibrated to just that point where I was like, I get what it's going for, but it's, I just couldn't do it. But it's interesting. It's, it's a, it's a bizarre one. It's unique for sure. It tries something new. I enjoy bizarre. Um, yeah. So I don't know. Um, is it time to move on to Love Bites? Are we? I think it is. What do you got oh, for yeah. us this week? Um, well, I guess actually before we move on to Love Bites, we should plug off all, all of our stuffies. Um, Facebook, Necromancer Pod. Twitter, Necromancer Pod. 
Gmail, necromancerpodcast at gmail.com. That is correct. And on Instagram, we are the Necromancer Podcast. Very nice. Uh, be sure to do all the subscribing and the liking and the sharing and the reviewing, all that stuff that helps get visibility so that everyone else can hear these amazing remixes you before they get, get turned into real movies. Yeah. <laughs> um, and vote on your favorite remixes. Definitely. Also, uh, as far as love bites are concerned, when is the last time you watched Alien vs. Predator? A long time ago, but I love Sanaa Lathan, and I'm here for her romance with the Predator. Oh, yeah. Her her Predator bonding and the uh, scarring, the hunter scar mark and everything. Oh, I love it. Alien versus Predator, I remember when the movie came out and it was a PG-13 movie and everyone was throwing a hissy fit because it wasn't rated R, even though the franchises are both rated R franchises. Um, I don't know. I remember that. People were bitching about that. Yeah, I went back. I rewatched it for the first time since, I don't know, 2005. And I have to say, this movie is freaking awesome i don't even care that it's pg-13 because the movie pumps up the aliens and the predators in such a way like it's a very freddy versus jason great script in the fact that yeah how else do you get predators and aliens to come together you put them in an ancient pyramid the predators have a queen alien hooked up and then the aliens use their acid blood to free the queen. And there's a bunch of humans who shouldn't be there running around. So now there's a bunch of aliens because there's a bunch of eggs and face huggers and eh, chaos. Of course, that's exactly how the movie happens. Uh, how do you get Freddy and Jason to fight each other? No one believes Freddy anymore. So Freddy goes to hell and resurrects Jason to instill fear into the kids of Elm Street. And then... Freddy comes back. He has enough fear power to come back, but Jason won't stop killing. So now Freddy versus Jason. Like sometimes it's just a simple, silly horror versus story is the best. This movie's great. This movie is almost perfect. The only thing that sucks about the movie is that the characters are so generic and forgettable that the moment the movie ends, you're like, I don't remember any defining qualities about any of the characters. Like I remember Sonali then. I, I don't she know who that hero. is. She's the hero. She was the woman who teams up with the T2 predator, you know, because he, he does a face turn T2 style. Right. Uh, and she teams up with him. No, I remember the character, especially because I just watched it again. But, like, no, I remember her teaming up with the Predator at the end. Like, that's definitely a hoorah moment. But can, can what can you tell me about her character? She's the Predator's girlfriend. I don't know. <laughs> that's what I can tell you. So if I defined any other woman as a character's girlfriend, <laughs> you would say that that means they're memorable? Like. <laughs> Uh, yeah, what what's her name? Was the serial killer's wife in the call? She that was she's memorable, right? Like the, the movie does no favors for any of its characters, and it just sucks because if this movie they're just had, cannon fodder, yeah, and but it's awesome that they're cannon fodder because 
Yeah, I mean, the one character who takes out the handgun and shoots the one face hugger, and he's like, haha, gotcha, face hugger. But then the camera pulls back, and it's a room full of face huggers, and you're like, oh shit, this guy's fucked. Face huggers, what? Like, I don't know. I just think that get hugged. If if this movie had a kind of Infinity War esque twenty movie build up where we could just have fun with these characters, like this movie needed a sort of Infinity War jump start where we just like immediately got a sense of who all these characters were instead of all these characters being really one note and not really well developed like i don't know i if uh rumor is on the street either today or yesterday rumor is that marvel just got a hold of alien and predator franchises so not too far off to get an infinity war meets alien versus predator in avengers versus you know Speaking of Alien. people who love putting pop songs over over action sequences, let's say now Marvel has acquired Alien versus Predator. What pop song are they going to play over the Alien versus Predator fight? I'm gonna need I'm gonna need way more time to think of that one. <laughs> I'll have to get back to you on the next episode or something because. I'm going to be thinking about that all day now. But you know how much they love doing shit like that. Right. Like that, that there's nothing that a Marvel movie loves more than recycling your dad's yacht rock as a perk of a superhero. Um and uh yeah, I could see something like um uh Rick Astley's never going to give you up. Like they're no. getting Rick rolled. I don't want it. Oh, <laughs> is that too crazy? I don't know. <laughs> you don't want to get Rick rolled by Alien versus Predator. Good. No, because then the Rick roll is going to overshadow the Alien versus Predator. It's gonna. What were you gonna say? I was gonna say. I mean, I'm a huge Kung Pao fan. Uh, maybe Black Betty. Whoa, Whoa Black Betty. Betty. Man, man. Man. I have a friend who that's one of her favorite songs ever. Oh, and I think of song. it, I think of her every time I hear it. That That's you, Casey. Um, so uh, for me, I really struggled because I wanted, again, to do a love bite that was with the theme. So recommending another Halle Berry movie. And then I realized I hadn't seen that much of, Halle Berry's many movies, or if I've seen a Halle Berry movie, usually she's been a side character or the girl like Bond or Swordfish or something like that. Um, but I remembered that uh, in many of my pitches, I have included a moment where somebody stumbles into a room and finds a collage of pictures of themselves or things like that. And without telling you who it happens to and when, there's a Halle Berry movie called Perfect Stranger, and that is where I got this idea from. It is directly from Perfect Stranger because it happens in that movie. Uh, and Perfect Stranger, I would say that Similar to The Call, this is more of a B-movie. It's kind of trying to be a neo-noir, 
where Halle Berry is a reporter. She thinks that her friend was killed by Bruce Willis, and now she's trying to get to the bottom of what really happened. And it's really ambiguous whether or not Bruce Willis is a bad guy or a good guy. Uh, and, you know, whether or not even Halle Berry is a good person or a bad person. So it's it's kind of this sort of noir mystery. Uh, and I, I like Halle Berry in the movie because she's a confident woman. She's um, confident in her sexuality while pursuing Bruce Willis. She also has this really hot boyfriend. Um, so I... I don't know. I think she's just so good at playing, you know, not just strong female character trademark, but really women who I consider strong and confident and interesting and heroic. So Perfect Stranger is what I would recommend hmm. if you want another Halle Berry movie. Yeah, I might have to give it a shot because I much like the call when I went into the call, I was like, eh, this movie's probably dumb. So I thought perfect stranger. Yeah. That movie's probably dumb. It's silly. It's right. a silly movie, but oh. I mean, who doesn't love a great reveal of a bunch of picture collages mm, that yeah. you didn't expect. <laughs> that's a, uh, that's always a juicy, juicy, applause guttural sort of yes <laughs> obsession <laughs> all right well i guess that is it for today well we've learned hallie has got heart and so do we Necromancer is produced by Brett Dorman and Shira Moore. The theme song is Symphonia 3 by Kevin McLeod on the album Oddities.